And what we did is we bought one share from about 20 different companies that we liked. Because we're like, we're just testing it out. We were one share of 20 companies. So first of all, turns out, well, this is not a smart way to invest, but over time, none of the shares increased massively. And then when we left the States and we're like, we have to kind of close down this portfolio, selling every single share meant that we had to pay a fee on every single share. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And that mission has led me to create the Become a Better Investor community. In the community, you get access to tools to help you create, grow, and protect your wealth. Go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to claim your spot. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Michael Bungay-Stainer. Michael, are you ready to join the mission? I am so ready. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Andrew. I'm happy to have you. And I'm going to introduce you to the audience for those that don't recognize you. Michael is the author of seven books, which between them have sold over a million copies. He's best known for the coaching habit, the best-selling coaching book of the century, and already recognized as a classic. His new book, How to Begin, helps people be more ambitious for themselves and the world. Michael was a Rhodes Scholar and plays a ukulele badly. He's Australian and lives in Toronto, Canada, and you can learn more about him at mbs.works. Michael, take a minute and tell us about the unique value you bring to this wonderful world. I would say if I was backed into a corner and had to fess up, it would be that I am good at unweirding stuff. I'm good at taking what is complex and making it simple and accessible and usable. You know, the success of the coaching habit book is because really I'm unweird in coaching. It goes from some sort of black box, woo-woo, HR, touchy-feely, pastel-colored thing to a practical way of actually bringing out the best in yourself and in others. So yeah, it's that translation mm. role to move from simple through complex to more powerful simplicity. And what is it that causes you to do that? Like some people are, let's say you're a slow learner. And you think, I got to map this out. It's I got to make it more simple for myself before I understand yeah. it. Some people are fast learners, but they just see like a different angle to something. What is the origin from your perspective of that? That's a very interesting question. I think it's because I realized in school, both high school and then university, that I was kind of playing a game. You know, there was a game around how do you get marks and how do you get a certain score and how do you impress a certain teacher? And there was power into understanding some of the principles behind the, the noise, trying to find the signal amongst the noise, perhaps. And also there is a degree to which I just, I actually like the moment of discovery when I've been chewing on something and working something and writing and rewriting and rewriting something. And I get it into a form where I'm like, I think this is as crystalline as this idea can be. I just feel that is, I'm not only creating things that are useful in the world, I'm creating things that might be beautiful in the world as well. That's 
fascinating. I mean, it's always interesting to think about how, why we do what we do. And I know when we're young, sometimes even the way we do things is seen as like a weakness or this kid can't do it the other way or that. But it turns out that those kind of squeaky wheels are ending up coming up with different ways of looking at things. And I think when I read The Coaching Habit a long time ago, it was like, oh, this is just, you know, it was beautifully written perfectly laid out, but most importantly, it was simple. And I have a way of describing this book in just one word. And I think that it could also apply if you were to write a book about satisfying your sexual partner. And the, okay. <laughs> the one word is wait. I think that's nice. And I totally get what you mean, both in the, the power of the book itself and kind of how it might move over to, you know, satisfying your partner. It's like, you know, the behavior change in the book is a simple but difficult one, which is, can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little more slowly? Because if you just take your time, you know, there'll be a time for you to give advice. But if you waited a little longer and you've understood the problem a little better and you've heard the other person's ideas a little bit when it is time for you to act when it's time for you to give advice then it's going to be better more on point and more useful and that's true with so many things which is you know let the moment ripen <laughs> so that when you pluck the peach it is the perfect peach let the moment ripen it's great and one of the things that i got in the habit of doing after reading this book is that I started, you know, because I'm in the financial world, a lot of people talk to me about startup companies and stuff like that. And they ask me for the, my idea. And I always go back to them. And I, before I start to give any advice, I always just say, let me just clarify. You're asking for my advice. Yeah. And by doing that, it just changes the dynamic quite a bit, you yeah. know. So, And, you know, a tactic in the book, but it's useful for people to hear is that when somebody comes to you and says, can you give me your advice? A, it's a very good response to go wait just checking you actually want my advice because sometimes we make up that the other person wants their advice and they, they don't but i always when somebody asks me for advice i go look i've got some ideas and i've got some advice i've got some thoughts and i'm going to share them with you but i'm curious to know what ideas do you already have what do you already know because if i can figure out what they already know then i'm not going to give them this i'm not going to be redundant in what i tell them I'm going to have a more nuanced understanding of what the landscape is so that when I do offer a piece of advice, it's new and it's different and it's potentially helpful. It's a great point because many times I've given advice in the past and I start looking at the person's face and they're going like, oh, I already know that. Yeah, Just exactly. just the simple thing of kind of understanding what do you, where are you at? Maybe a way I always tell people is like, if I was to arrive in London and I called up my friend and said, hey, I want to come see you. Can you tell me how to get to your place? And they say, yeah, yeah, where are you? And I say, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, can you, you know, can you tell me something about where you are? Well, I don't, I don't really yeah. know. Well, how the hell is anybody going to help you get to where you want to go right. if they don't, you don't know and they don't know where you are? Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, where are you and what ideas do you already have and how do you prefer to travel and how much time do you have and how much money do you have? And when you've tried to travel in London before, what's really worked for you and what hasn't worked for you? Mm. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, you're right next to a taxi rank. You've got 300 pounds in your in your wallet and you love traveling in taxis. So here's my tip. Go to the taxi driver, give them this address and you should be fine. But it depends. 
And I do love riding in taxis in London, I tell you. Oh, yeah. Black cab is fantastic. Yeah. I just want to do one last thing before we get into the big question of the podcast, and that is to answer the question, why did I ask you to come on this podcast? And I want to explain that I have the community to become a better investor community, and we focus a lot on investing. But, you know, I thought to myself, well, I had started a book club, but I kind of realized that it's hard to focus my energy on, you know, that along with all the other stuff I do. So I, what I did is I went on Amazon and Goodreads and then I, being an analyst, I scraped all this data. I analyzed to try to come up with what are the best books of all time in the different areas of business and investing. I wanted to come up with a list of maybe 30 books or something like that so that we could say, this is a curriculum and that's what I call it. I call it the curriculum. And then what I do is I have summaries I've written on each one of these books. And then I've created PowerPoints where I intermingle my own stories of when this book came along in my life and that type of thing. And your book, The Coaching Habit, is one of the books within that management section. So first of all, I want to congratulate you on that. But maybe I just just curious, like, where has that book led you? You know, when you think about where it started versus where you are now, how did that set you on a journey and maybe just describe where you are now and a little bit of that so that the audience knows what you're up to? So let me start where I am now and then we can kind of figure out how, how the hell I got here. Cause <laughs> I'm as amused as anybody. So I founded a training company called Box of Crayons. It's about 20 years old now. And, you know, it, it works with multinationals around the world to help managers and leaders and people in that organization be curious, stay curious a little bit longer and use curiosity to unleash better engagement, better impact, better innovation, all of that stuff that is useful and critical within organizational life. About three years ago, I stepped away from being CEO of that. So another person on the team is the CEO and she leads the company, but its growth and its success in the six or seven years since the coaching habit have come out, have been driven by the success of the coaching habit because it has been this viral success. It's sold, it's now sold actually close to a million and a half copies. So it's really become the coaching book, particularly for normal people who don't want to be a coach, although lots of coaches read it, but they do want to use the power of coaching to unlock the best in other people. So, you know, when I started a box of crayons 20 years ago, my business plan was best described as look for somebody with a pulse and a wallet and see if I can sell them something because I got fired from my job. It was, you know, I was like, okay, I'm on my own for the first time. I've got a grab bag of skills from market research to innovation, to facilitation, to change management, but I've got no strong point of view, no strong point of difference. And part of what the coaching habit did was allowing me to commit fully to saying, this is what Box of Crayons does. It's a company built on the foundation of how do we champion curiosity within organizations and how do we make curiosity a, a practical everyday tool for people. Mm. And what's the best way for the audience to follow what you're doing? You know, you've got your website, your podcast, different stuff. Yes. What, where would be the place that you would recommend they go? Yeah. Look, if you're a if you're a corporate buyer with a huge budget and you're like, how do I bring training into my organizations? I'm guessing there's not many of you listening, but just in case, boxofcrayons.com is the website to find out about that corporate offering. But you know, my new business is about helping individuals unlock their greatness and unlock the greatness of those around them. And that website is mbs.works. 
And that's the hub. And there's a bunch of free courses and free downloads and free resources that you can get. You know, if you were tempted by Andrew's description of the coaching habit, you can go to the coaching habit link there and get access to videos and downloads and all sorts of things from, about the book. Fantastic. And I'll have links to all that in the show notes. Thank but you. now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, take a minute and tell us about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Yeah, I grew up in a family where there was an investment, not really. You know, my I grew up in Canberra in Australia and my parents were worked for the government, public servants as we call them in Australia. And the idea was you work and you build a pension. The longer you work, the bigger your pension is. You pay off your mortgage and you pay for life and that's it. So investing was a foreign world for me. And after I had been in Australia, done university there, traveled to Oxford to study, met my wife, fell in love, got married, lived in London for a time, working and not earning very much money in London, and then joining a company that took me to Boston. And I'm now in 1999, year 2000, thereabouts. I was finally earning a salary where I, I had money to invest. And I was also working with people who are like, oh, I've got a stock kit for you. Now, even at those early days, I realized that if I was hearing a stock tip, it was probably the worst stock to invest in because I would be in the final, you know, decile of people hearing that stock tip. So it was a really great guidance to go, whatever, whatever you do, don't follow that particular stock tip because it is absolutely not the thing to do. But we, my wife and I had money and we had like 5,000 bucks. And we're like, we're going to invest it because it's like, I think the stock market was booming and my friends were investing money and making money. And I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds exciting. So I said to my wife, I said, look, I want you to be our, our chief investment officer of our family. I want you to take this money and, and I want you to figure out how best to invest it. Where, where, you know, where are you going to put it? So she went away and she, she did great work and she came back and she had a plan, which I went, that sounds a great plan. Let's do that. And I think it was like E-Trade or equivalent had, had just got going. So you could do this without a broker, you know, you could do it online and so you set up an account. And what we did is we bought one share from about 20 different companies that we liked. Because we're like, we're just testing it out. We were one share of 20 companies. So first of all, turns out, well, this is not a smart way to invest, but over time, none of the shares increased massively. And then when we left the States and we're like, we have to kind of close down this portfolio selling every single share meant that we had to pay a fee on every single share. So we had lost money already on the portfolio. And then we lost about half the remaining value of the portfolio, just in the, the fees and trying to sell off and close down the portfolio. So I would say that would be my <laughs> great naive experience that, oh, I think I'm becoming an investor. Interesting. So how would you summarize the lessons that you learn? Well, the fundamental lesson has been this. I can't be bothered to figure out how to be a smart investor. Like it's just not, it's just not interesting enough to me. Mm. And now that I 
I have a degree of you know liquidity. I have hired an expert to do this for me. So the key implication or the the way this has unfolded is I have, after a number of false starts, a deeply trusted financial advisor who manages my investments for me. And I meet with her twice a year. And I mostly go, carry on, Rona. <laughs> You're doing a great job. You're thoughtful. You've got perspective around it. You know the language of this, Andrew, better than me, but she is not a, I pay an annual fee to her regardless of the work. She had like a percentage right. of the portfolio rather yep. than a, rather than paying for every trade. So I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to pay for the results rather than for random activity. Mm. And that's the key. I mean, there's other obvious lessons if you're an investor, which is like, don't buy one share of a company, yeah. <laughs> not a lot of companies. Understand how the fees you pay will influence what, you know, your investment portfolio. But those are kind of the more tactical lessons from it. The bigger mm. lesson for me was, if you're not going to be really good at this, perhaps find somebody else who's really good at it and go and find something else for you to be really good at. Uh there's so many different things that come to my mind when I listen to that. The first thing is maybe I'll share a few things that I take away from it. You know, the first thing is I always tell people, and you'll hear it at the end of the podcast, create, grow, and protect your wealth. And I like to separate creating and growing wealth because creating wealth is, you know, growing wealth is that 5,000 that your wife put in the market. Creating right. wealth is you saying, and honey, next month, I'm going to bring in another 5,000. <laughs> right. And there's very different. And many people go into the stock market thinking they're going to create wealth when in, they should be focusing on growing their wealth. So that's the first thing that I always like to, to separate. And if we get better and better at creating our wealth, even if we make mistakes with growing our wealth, we can replenish that money. So that's the first thing that I would highlight on this case. Now, the second thing is, you know, it's interesting to kind of think of the, the context. 1999 was, you know, the time of the big dot-com bubble. That's so right. everybody was getting in the market and everybody <laughs> lost. Right. So if it brings you any comfort. <laughs> I was in good company. Yeah, I was in good company. It's like, yes. I didn't, you know. You lost I'm, with I, a lot of friends. <laughs> that brings me not the least bit of comfort. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And the point is though, that when markets are at their peak is when the word of markets spreads, you know, so massively. So that's the second thing. So I think put things in the context is part of what I'm saying is try to understand the context of where are things at in the markets, which is hard to do, which brings me to the next question is that like, do you have interest in investing? Do you have time? Do you have knowledge? Those are the three questions. I asked those questions in one of the books I wrote called how to start building your wealth, investing in the stock market. Right. And you know, if you have interest and you have time and, and you have knowledge, then pick stocks, go for it. But if you don't have you know, if you don't, if you have interest and you have time, but you don't have knowledge, okay, you got to study first. But if you don't have interest, then keep it much more simple, you know, and that there's two ways of doing that. One is to say, okay, I'm just going to buy a fund that owns every stock in the world. Yeah. And then I'm just yeah. going to invest in that. That's for the person that says, I want to do it myself. I don't want to go to an advisor. That's a very simple way of doing it and getting access to the long-term growth of the stock market. But another idea is to go to a professional. And you remind me of the story of my mom and dad, which basically they went to a professional and that professional carried them through, you know, on, on not, not a huge amount of money, that professional yeah. carried them through 22 years of retirement. 
And then when my mom, when my father passed away and I brought my mom to live with me here in Bangkok, she had enough money to be able to say to mom, you don't have to worry about money for the rest of your life. And that is, that is really a function of an ethical and responsible yeah. advisor. So I think that's the last takeaway that I would say is that if you, if you don't know much about this stuff, try to find someone, meet with a bunch of different people, find someone you trust that explains things in ways that you understand, and then sign up with them and start to work with them because just like any other professional, they can bring a lot of value. Anything you would add to those takeaways? Well, it's making me think of an additional lesson I would have taken from that, which I've, I'm trying to pay forward, which is it's useful to understand the story you have around money and how it works and how what you grow up influences that. So I was back in Australia recently, my, where I grew up, and I took my nieces. I had five nieces and nephews, all kind of 15 to 20, roughly, in age group. And at that age, I had this singular idea of how money works. You get a steady job. So we went out to dinner and we just had a conversation about what are the different ways that you can make money? You know, you can work for yourself. You can get a job with somebody else. You can build a company and scale beyond yourself. You can invest. And we talked about the pros and cons, the prizes and punishments of each one of those, because each one has its upside and each one has its downside. And then as a kind of the, as a way of trying to accelerate their learning about how money makes money, I've offered each one of my nieces and nephews a thousand dollar loan for 18 months. And if they're allowed to do anything they want with this thousand dollars to experiment on how to make money. So they can buy an index fund and just track, you know, grow slowly. They can buy Bitcoin if there is any more places left to buy Bitcoin. If they want to kind of take a big risk, they can use it to fund and buy capital for a, a business. You know, they can do a startup of a business if they want to play around with that. There's a prize that after 18 months, the person who's earned the most money gets up. There's a $300 prize up mm. for grabs. So there's a bit of kind of heat to it. And there's a guarantee of $500. So if they lose it all, they will still walk away with 500 bucks because at the end of 18 months, the loan turns into a gift. As long as they write me three reports at the six, 12 and 18 month mark around what they've learned from playing around with investment. So there's a, a lesson that I grew up with a sense of, I grew up in a kind of a middle-class family, but the broad sense around money was scarcity, which is like, don't do anything stupid to lose money. It's precious and you just spend it on essentials. And one of the things I'm hoping to reteach to kids is like, here's how you can think of money as a tool. Here's how you can think of money as something that you can risk with the possibility of the upside around that. And, you know, it, I didn't really start understanding that until my 30s. I'm hoping the kids understand that just a little more quickly. Well, I think telling that story already gets people thinking about how to talk about money. I mean, even like in my family, we didn't really talk about that. That was mom and dad stuff. And, you know, yeah. it, it's uh, the, that type of thing. So I think just the conversation and then coming up with this type of method is fantastic. I had five, I have five nieces. And when they each turned 18, I flew from Bangkok to the US with $3,000 in my pocket and I gave them nice. the 3,000. I said, but the only thing you can do with this is put it in a Vanguard account and invest as I explain. And then I helped them. And then I wrote the book, How to Start Building Your Wealth with the idea being that this would be the guide. So 
but any way that we start the conversation with young people is fantastic. Yeah, agreed. So I, I want to ask you, I want to go back now in time to the, the period when you and your wife were talking about this 5,000 that you now had. And I want you to think about a young person today who's in that situation that they've generated some, they've created some wealth and they want to invest it. So based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one piece of advice would you give our listeners to help them avoid suffering the same fate? Well, I guess first I would ask them, what do they want to do with money? What does success with money look like for them? Because what was interesting in talking to my nieces and nephews is that there was a range of different responses. One was actually not very interested in money at all. The other one of them was like, <laughs> it has lit his entrepreneurial flame. He is just so excited and he's figuring out ways of making money and scaling up and all sorts of things. So I think it's a start to go, what's your relationship with money and how do you see it and how do you use it? Mm. Because it's only when you understand that you can then go, so what do you think you might do with this? Because for some, it might be like, I'm going to go and spend this and have an experience because that's mine. That's wealth for me is having stories to tell that, you know, I'll be able to tell those for the rest of my life. Other mm. people are like, I, don't, I want, I am, I want to be super wealthy, so I'm going to start figuring out how to buy and sell and, and scale this money. Others are like, you know what? I'm up for the slow growth, so I'm going to put in an index fund and power of compound interest. And you know, by the time I'm 60, my five grand will now be worth, you're the financial advisor, Andrew, you'll be able to tell me, but it'll be like $8 trillion. A lot. <laughs> or something. Yeah, a lot. You know, it's just like, just let it sit there and watch it grow. So mm. I think that's where I would start not with advice, but with some conversations about what do you think you might want? Yeah. Actually, what you also kind of did with them was have a conversation with a group of people, because when you do that, then you start to realize, oh, wait a minute, not everybody thinks about money the way I do. Exactly. Yeah. That's very interesting <laughs> for me too. Yeah. So what's a, what's a resource of yours that you'd recommend to the listener? Where do you think that they should go to start and get, what are they going to get from that? Well, I mean, it's a little selfish, but I would say the, the work that I am best at is particularly having a think about what's a big worthy goal for you. What do you want in your life and how do you find something that will, you know, crack you open and unlock your own greatness. And if you're interested in trying to figure out what's the next big thing for you and how you might claim ambition for yourself in the world, then the place to go to is mbs.works, which is my website. There is just a lot of free resource there. I love I love being a teacher. It's one of the joys I have in life. And so if you're looking to get some of that, mbs.works might be a website for you to check out. Fantastic. And I'll have a link again to that in the show notes. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? You know, because my last book, How to Begin, is about, about goal setting and about big goal setting rather than small goal setting. So I should have an answer to this, and I do. I think when you're setting goals... Sometimes it's about what are you building, what are you starting, what are you creating, what are you kind of initiating? And I call those, this is a, what I call the 3P model, so a project. Sometimes your, your goal is people, relationships you have. So you may be looking to change and evolve the relationship you have with people, important people in your life. And the third one is patterns. How do you overcome or change some of your own patterns, your own ways of showing up in the world? And that's the kind of the deepest, most self-reflective one of these. And that's what I'm working on at the moment is how do I become a writer? 
Now I'm already an author. I've got, I've written six or seven or eight books, but an author is a measurement of, a, of, do you have a book out in the world or not? A writer is a more a philosophy about how do you build a life around being a writer? How do you mm. structure it in a way? And I'm not there yet. You know, I'm a kind of businessman who creates books on the side and I'm looking to move into claiming writer more thoroughly as an identity. So that's proving harder than I thought. And so I think that's probably my big goal for the next 12 months. That's fascinating that you, you know, separate writer from author. I have a friend of mine that's, is a writer and yeah. we went to a retreat together for seven days to get to know each other. We brought our best books and we decided we would just talk about some of the stuff. And every morning I'd knock on his door and, you know, bring over some coffee and we'd sit down and every morning he was always on his bed with an open notebook writing. Right. And I looked at that and after I saw that a couple of days, I said, oh, you're a writer. I'm an author. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I'm <laughs> kind of like, how do I, how do I make that shift? You articulated it beautifully. Exactly. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. If you haven't yet joined the Become a Better Investor community and gotten access to my review of this book, go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to claim your spot. As we conclude, Michael, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? I would probably just say, Hey, you know, if you're taking one thing away from this conversation from Andrew and me, it might be learn to stay curious a little bit longer. Fantastic. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.